Hello, this is Brandon Boat, and you're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. The show we have for you today comes from a taping that we did at the Bryant Lake Bowl for our 10th season. We had on Dr. Kathy Dreger, who came on to talk about small towns. Kathy is the statewide director of the University of Minnesota Sustainable Development Partnerships. We talked a lot about, uh, specifically in Minnesota, what it means to be a small town and what's going on. There's a lot of brain drain, people are moving away, and industries are having to change. Factories are closing and natural resources are not uh, proving as fruitful as they once used to be. And so what does that mean for farmers and communities and we cover that in a variety of different ways, both in what's going on now and what do we need to do and what role should the state play in all of this. I hope you enjoy the show. Uh, we are terrifically excited. You all picked a wonderful evening to be here. Uh, this is going to be a great show because we have a wonderful guest, uh, Dr. Kathy Drager. She is the statewide director of the U's Regional Sustainable Development Partnerships. Fit that on a business card. Uh, she has her doctorate uh, in soils and water, uh, and she actually, this is my favorite thing we were just talking about backstage, she has her own farm with her family, family farm, uh, way out in Big Stone County, which when I asked, where's Big Stone County, she's like, you know the little like bulge on the side of uh, Minnesota, she, she, she lives in the bulge. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, big round of applause, Dr. Kathy Drager! <laughs> So thank you so much for uh, being here. I'm so making, uh, I, I would say make the trip to the big city, but you work at the <laughs> yeah, U. So, I do. I uh, so you're here uh, once in a while. I am. Yeah. So uh, I, I wanted to do this show and we talked a little bit about this backstage because I think that there is generally sort of a narrative sometimes that gets, uh, that gets perpetuated that small towns are dying and uh, when... When will we finally give up and just all, uh, you know, seal our fate in 20-story high-rises uh, in mm -hmm. densely populated soul-like, uh, soulless uh, hellscapes? <laughs> uh, so I'm just, I'm just wondering, uh, when, when will that happen? Uh, <laughs> and have you accepted it? Uh, <laughs> um, I don't think that's the trick where we're going. That's not necessarily a trajectory. I mean, I'm from Big Stone County, Minnesota, and we have lost 50% of our population over the last 40 years. So you can definitely see the change on the landscape, but I think there's a lot of good to be said, and all those high-rises are going to need food, water, energy, and those don't necessarily come from inside those high-rises. Well, we can't do just like... We, have you seen the movie Biodome, like Polly Shore? Uh, no, I read the... I read the water knife, which, you know, kind of has some of that going on. I mean, that, so, uh, so you talked a little bit about Big Stone County, where you're from, has lost 50% mm -hmm. uh, of its population in 40 years. So I, let's get the sad part, maybe, of the story in some ways done. Uh, okay. And what, uh, what, you came to a comedy show, and we're going to just talk <laughs> about, you know, rule decay. So what, what led to that? I guess, what, what, what's the f driving force behind that decline? 
I think we've, we had a very hopeful period of, you know, farming and agrarian populism. I think the Minnesota in this region really had a lot of progressive and forward-thinking people that, you know, put the farmer in DFL, for example. Um, so I think starting in the 1870s, 1860s, 1870s, we had a lot of immigrants from, you know, some of the old European, the Scandinavian, Germanic countries, and we had the Homestead Act. Um, and so that Homestead Act really helped populate the landscape. And, and we should, I mean, I'm sure everyone remembers from their, like, <laughs> AP social studies class uh, exactly what the Homestead Act did. <laughs> But just in case. <laughs> just in case. So that basically allowed you to get 80 acre, 180 or 160 acre parcels uh, that you could have more or less for free if you lived there for a certain number of years. And where I'm from, Big Stone County, you also had to plant a 10 acre tree claim. So when you look at Big Stone County, there'll be all these uh, 10 acre spots of, of trees. And those were like the only trees in Big Stone County. And, when wait, wait so we there. forced people to plant trees yes. in places that the trees didn't want to be? That's exactly right. There were no trees at all in Big Stone County until the Homestead Act, which people don't realize is one of the effects. Um, so yes. I feel like that's a whole other show that I want to <laughs> do now. Like, And I can tell where there are houses because they only planted the pine trees where there's houses. And all the other, like the, you know, box elder and all kind of the scrub trees, those were what people uh, put filthy, in the... Filthy box yeah, elder. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay, so uh, that, so we had a very strong uh, rural uh, uh, community and, and yep. movement, uh, a lot of immigrants. So that started, as you said, 1870s, and then yep. what happened, I guess, maybe over the next 50 years... Uh, sure, yeah. the populations really increased. A lot of them followed the railroads. We had railroads in Big Stone County that ran both south, north and south, and east and west. So we had a lot of, you know, places, a lot of communities that built up around that. And then, kind of starting after World War II, is really when we started to see people, you know, the GI Bill. You know, it's much easier. I'm sorry to be an accountant than to be a farmer sometimes. And so I think uh, people were able then Way to, to make enemies of accountants. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> but no, it, farming is hard, and I want to get back to that. But so. Uh, <laughs> GI Bill uh, and things like that, yep. people started moving more right. into the cities and yep. or into the suburbs even. Mm -hmm. Well, and, you know, I can just, I'll just give you one example. My husband's, um, his grandparents had 12 kids, and uh, three of those kids stayed on the farm and farmed. And then now in my husband's generation, he's the only one. And then we're hopeful that one of our kids, but to go from like all your brothers and sisters and siblings farming to three to one to what's the next generation going to be. So I think we just saw people leave the countryside and, and take jobs in the city. I mean, the, I, I, the, the sociological reasons are absolutely there, but there's economic reasons that pushed a lot of this change too, right? right. Like industries changed and yes. the way that farming happens changed. Mechanization and, you know, the change in farming practice, you know, pesticides, for example, which you, you know, are able, you don't need to cultivate anymore. You can right. spray. So I think there's been some of those changes as well. Well, I mean, I could, I, I don't know exactly uh, with your family's farm, but uh, I would imagine that when your husband's parents or grandparents were uh, working that farm that it took X number mm -hmm. of people and now it takes probably many, many fewer people to actually run that. So there's just sort of yeah. fewer jobs to do. That's exactly right. So yeah, they always had one of the boys 
one of his uncles didn't, you know, skipped school for the year to stay home and farm. So they took turns who was skipping school and staying home and farming full time. Wow, that for a year. How did that pan out? Uh, <laughs> well, like I said, you know, most of them left the farm and <laughs> yeah. but three of them stayed. What so. can I this is totally side what year did your husband skip? You know, no, he didn't skip. Oh, oh he didn't. But skip. he did leave the farm. He did he leave the farm for many years. Oh, I was gonna because if he skipped yeah. like tenth grade, like you could be like, I know algebra, <laughs> so uh, uh, you missed that year. Uh, so okay, so uh, we talked a little bit about some of this and uh, uh, these changes, and you know, we were talking even a little bit downstage that there's stuff that's happening even now where things are changing very, very quickly mm-hmm. uh, in rural communities. So can you just tell us sort of like right now in the last five. 10 years what's what's changing on the rural landscape so yeah just to cap off that sad part of the show um (laughs) so um we moved out to big stone county eight years ago and started farming the family farm bought the family farm um and at that time we really were hoping to be like part of a vanguard of people who were going back and you know repopulating these rural areas and what i've seen over the last eight years is that a lot of these buildings are reaching their age limit like all these barns you know when you picture a rural place you see that kind of idyllic barn they're like collapsing and even more than that um, with the price of corn so high a few years ago, people are just digging holes and burning and burying. So all those farmsteads that are just gone, they're just disappearing off the landscape without a trace, like overnight or in a couple days' time, you can go from you know, having a farmstead with a grove and a barn and a house to having just a black field. Oh, no, I... I I didn't we didn't talk about this so just recently this is again a tangent everyone just uh, please fill out the surveys that are in your programs <laughs> Uh, about how good the show is while we do this. I just recently did a carpentry project where I built a, a table out of old barn pieces. I'm go. so sorry uh, now. Now I, <laughs> now I have this trend. extreme guilt. I know. Did I destroy the yes, rural America? You, you are, and you're profiting from for, it. For, I'm pro- well, it's only my... I didn't <laughs> oh, sell yeah. it. It's my table. But I mean, I, you know, I'm a South Minneapolis, like, yeah. urban, terrible thing, and uh, now I'm... I'm somehow, I've ripped down hundreds of years of history and that way right. of life, and mm-hmm. Norman Rockwell is weeping yes. somewhere. <laughs> oh, jeez. Okay. Um, oh, so you mentioned the price of corn. So uh, can you just say a word about why does it matter what the price of corn is? Isn't that great for farmers that corn is expensive? Yeah, it is. <laughs> Until you build up a lot of infrastructure and then corn drops like by more than half and now you have a quarter million dollar tractor and combine and you bought land for $10,000 an acre and you're trying to make money off it at $3 bushel corn, which is impossible. Um, and I was kind of saying it's kind of, you know, you need more, when the corn price is good, everyone wants to pull down the barn because you get a few more bucks. And then when the corn prices are bad, you have to plant more acres trying to make up for the loss of corn price. So it's kind of become like a lose-lose, at least for the barns situation. <laughs> and that's who we care about. Uh, so uh, you're the director of statewide uh, yes. regional partnership uh, uh, analysis. Uh, I'll just dire- let you find it. Uh, yeah. Statewide use regional sustainable development partnerships. So uh, I w- did want to ask you, when we're talking about greater Minnesota, smaller mm-hmm. communities, what, what do we even mean when we say sustainable? Is that an environmental term? Is it an economic term? Both? 
I, I mean, I think it's all those. It's the social, the economic, um, and the environmental. I mean, we kind of talk about it as a three-legged stool. So we want to make sure that all those pieces are working together. So what's, give us a good example of uh, sort of where that's going well, like a community that's kind of embracing some of those things. Well, and I, you know, I've been talking about Big Stone County, so I'll continue using that as an example. You know, I'm, People are going to start to worry that's the only place. <laughs> <that's> like, <laughs> and, and there's going to be a lot, like we should hand out brochures for Big Stone County. You should get a kickback hey, at some time. Th- all right, so uh, my, my economic development director would be happy. We'll say that's mnbump.com. So that bump on the side of the state, they're... They're, oh, they're it's a bump, not a bulge. Sorry. It's a bump. Um, yeah, okay. mnbump.com. Um, so, so there's a lot of things going right. And, you know, one of the things I like about being in a small town is that you can make things happen that you wouldn't be able to happen necessarily in a big town. For example, I'll just give you one small example. We moved out there, and my kids came home from school the last day of school with they each had a coupon for $30 from the food shelf to buy nuts, fruits, vegetables, and cheeses over the summer. Hmm. So I was feeling kind of bad. Like, I didn't need 90 bucks because I've got three kids in el- at that time in elementary school. I didn't need 90 bucks from the food shelf. I really didn't feel like taking food shelf money. So I call up. I'm like, you know, I don't need this $90. And they're like, well, you know, use it. It's good for the stores. Okay, that makes sense. I said, you know, for 90 bucks, I could plant like three fruit trees on my farm. And they're like, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do that too. So the next year... We bought 200 apple trees, and in addition to getting your $30 coupon to buy fruit and nuts, vegetables, we planted an apple tree at the home of every kid, K through 6. Um, and so there we go, food security. And, you know, we had a bunch of farmers who left planting, came into town, listened to an undergraduate in a horticulture department, tell them how to plant a fruit tree, and they, they went. And it's, it's a big school district. It's 50 miles wide. And then, anyway, it worked so well that year, we did it for the next four years, and we planted apples, cherries, um, plums, and then peaches. And, of course, all the peaches died. So anyone who knew was like, really, you're using fruit shelf money to plant peaches in Minnesota? But I'm a little bit of a risk taker, and I thought that might be nice. So, but they, they all died, every last one. Um, but I'll Why are you on. applauding for that? Do you hate peaches that much? <laughs> But so there's, I mean, that's one of the things that's good about a small town is that you can just like say, hey, what about? And they're like, okay, you know, and so, I mean, we have multiple examples like that. So I, so we, we were talking a little bit about sustainability. So I, I guess one of the questions, and you know, uh, somebody who, uh, somebody not me, who wanted to be more critical uh, of small towns might suggest, you know, well. It, Fine, if a small town is sustainable, let it be sustainable. But, you know, why should we, uh, for example, invest in a small town that's dying or, like, try Mm -hmm. and keep a place propped up that isn't working? So either through uh, tax incentives or through some sort of state aid or things like that. I mean, what's the the case for keeping that, if the town isn't sustainable as it is, to, to try and preserve it? That's a good question. I mean, I think it helps all of our resilience, urban and rural, when we've got a a multitude of different places that we can go and look to. I mean, humans have, like, settled and unsettled and, you know, moved across the landscape and oceans. So, you know, I mean, I don't want to get too esoteric, but really, you know, the city of Wilmer, their emergency management plan is that if there's ever some kind of terroristic national bad thing that happens, they're expecting their population to increase two to three times, like within 48 hours. Wait, what? Because... 
people are going to flee the cities. You're going to want to go where there's food and water and energy. And so, you know, some of these small towns are planning like, you know, hey, you're all going to come back when you need us sometime. So you may as well keep us healthy and strong and happy and come on back when, you know, the zompocalypse comes. You are- <laughs> Rural Minnesota's case for sustainability <laughs> is basically a, a, a hostage situation. <laughs> For a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> so you recently spoke no, to the oh, legislature, no, no, and no, I'm no. wondering <laughs> how much you said. Oh, it's a pretty city you got there. <laughs> Be a pity if something happened to us. <laughs> okay, so I think there's a lot of good reasons to keep rural Minnesota strong, and and pretty basic ones. You know, food. I'll go back to that again. I mean, that's where our farmers live, and you know. Urban agriculture is going to be really good and helpful and give you an idea what it's like to grow food. But in terms of really taking care of our urban places, you know, we need both of them. So, uh, And, yes, I was just at the legislature promoting rural grocery stores, which I think are part of. All right, the rural grocery crowd. Well, let's just uh, talk. Uh, can you tell us just a little bit about what you were saying there, particularly on rural grocery stores? And uh, we, should, uh, we kind of probably mm-hmm. previewed a little bit about what the problem is, but then – what both the problem and what you are advocating for? Yeah, that's a good question. So the problem is, you know, with these declining populations and with these big regional centers and with, you know, right now we've got a lot of, you know, mega stores in some of the big regional centers, but we're also seeing a lot of dollar stores going into, if you drive across greater Minnesota, you know, you'll see a lot of dollar stores going in. So, but we need to, we need to make sure we've got full service groceries that are available. They're just really important for Main Street, keep good community and also access to healthy food. So what's the state's role in making that happen? Though? Well, you know, I, I think there's some opportunities. I mean, if you go into some of these grocery stores, uh, you know, you'll see like 1950s era um, you know, produce case. Well, not cans necessarily, <laughs> but the produce cases are ancient, you know, 50, 60 years old. So, I mean, I think there's some of these infrastructure things that are like win, win, win. Like you can save energy, you can keep your produce longer, you know, you can improve the bottom line for a store. So, you know, like that, for example, would be something that could help out. So I should say in the second half of the show, uh, which uh, we're going to bring our guests back and uh, open it up to you all to ask questions. But before we're going to turn it over to the improvisers, but I did want to ask one last sort of follow up uh, on sort of our sad story piece, uh, but the happy probably turned. So yeah. you moved back and yes. there are other people who are yes. kind of moving back to mm-hmm. uh, smaller towns, smaller communities. Who are those people? Are they different than the people who were there a generation or two ago, either uh, demographically, professionally, uh, you know, mm-hmm. how they spend their time. I'm just curious. Uh, so, yep, so we moved back, and we see other people. It looks like the people who are moving back are folks like us. I had three three young kids and wanting some wide open spaces for them to run in and, and also just thought it would be a good place to raise kids. So that was part of our impetus, plus just to practice what we preach. But our neighbors, there are also people who relocated from the Twin Cities out to Big Stone County, and she's an artist, and he's an environmental conservationist. So they have just been totally put their shoulder to the wheel. Um, And we actually have a pretty big arts community in Big Stone County. I mean, it's reasonable to live, and we kind of have a critical mass of artists now. So it really just kind of helps just support that community. Um, But 
on Saturday night, I was in Milan, Minnesota, for a um, farming meeting. And, yeah, right, Milan farming. And, um, you know, Milan, Minnesota has had its population double. So this is one of those communities that's mm. thriving, and it's a, a Micronesian population that has moved really? to town. Yeah. So the owner of the bank was a Peace Corps volunteer in Micronesia, and when he came back to Milan, about 150 of his mm. friends came with him. And so, you know, it was fabulous. That is a big suitcase. Yeah. Uh, I don't... And, and, you know, the, you, I saw some pictures of they have a, what is it, Stinte Mai? Do you know, like the whatever that? Stinte Mai. Okay, see, I sh it's a Norwegian festival. And, you know, the floats with the Micronesians on them, all celebrating Stinte Mai. And, you know, here was this farming meeting in one part of the closed but still actively used school. And the other part was the Micronesians. And all our kids were just playing together outside, you know, in the grass while, you know, the grown-ups were doing their thing. So, um, so there's an example of people coming back. And Walnut Grove, talking about rural groceries. So Walnut Grove, their grocery store closed down, but they have a huge Hmong population who has moved back to that area. And the grocery store that's on Main Street Walnut Grove is, is an Asian market, you know. Hmm. So um, I think we're seeing a different change in some of the face of greater Minnesota. Um, so. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, on that uh, very uh, beautiful note, can we do a big round of applause, Dr. Kathy Drager. So, All right, so if you have a question, please raise your hand. I will race towards you with a microphone. We've got multiple ones right here in the front. I'll come up there, though, next. I wanted to ask about um, a comment that you made, uh, or you were quoted as making anyway, on the, on the cover of the, the evening's program. Um, I'd read years ago, I've lived in Germany a couple times, about how there were a number of farms who had uh, made their energy generation systems using methane from manure from their farms and so on and so forth, and you mentioned that you do that on your, something like that on your farm. I'd like to know exactly what you do and if that is spreading that sort of self-sufficiency. Oh, that is such a good question. So um, we, we do produce all of the heat and all the electricity we use on our farm. We do that with wind power. So it's really windy in western Minnesota, which is the other thing I forgot to mention earlier. Um, and so that's how that's what we do. And we also, when we bought the farm, you know, all those 10-acre tree stands that were planted in 1870, there's a lot of dead standing wood. Uh, so we're using that to heat our, our home. Um, I think that there are some barriers. We do see uh, wind turbines going up and other uh, solar um, power going up. But I think there's just a few barriers to um, seeing that really proliferate. Can you say more? more? What are those barriers? Uh, you know, we kind of have a business model set up for selling electricity that um, doesn't really benefit as much when we all individually own our own power. So I think we just have to work through some of those bumps and figure out a better uh, kind of business model so that, like, I also sit on the board of a rural electric co-op, so I got voted in by my neighbors to serve on AgriLite Electric Co-op Board. And, you know, there's it's not necessarily that popular that you produce your own energy when they're in the business of selling it. Hmm. So Interesting. So uh, I got one right here. Hi. Um, so when we talk about vitality of small towns, we often talk about either keeping people there or getting people to come back. And I wonder if it's really an either-or scenario. Um, there are a lot of countries that have experienced out-migration for different reasons, mm -hmm. and they have ministries of diasporas. So, you know, mm -hmm. you've got Israel, you've got, I 
I'm not sure about Australia, Somalia, Armenia, and the, the Ministry of Diaspora's mandate is to figure out how to engage their diasporas to, um, to support their, their countries, whether that's uh, economically, uh, philanthropically, or otherwise. What is the potential for that? And by the way, I'm from a small town in North Dakota. Okay. Great. Oh, that is a fabulous question. So, so I think probably what you're saying is, and, and you see this popping up, and we've got all these initiative foundations, and they're out there trying to build these community foundations, and then you can tap into those people, the exiles, the people who left. I think that's kind of what you're saying. Expatriates, the, you know, the folks from small town places. So I think that there's probably you know, an and or... Um, you know, that we can build more. I mean, how many of you, you know, like, I don't know, you're obviously from a small town, you know, maybe your parents or your grandparents are also from small towns. I find when I ask classes of people, you know, that, you know, if you ask if your grandparents were ever on a farm or in a small town, you know, it's more than half the class that still raises their hands. So it's just been in the more recent years that people are leaving. Do we know if anybody is, are you aware at least of anybody who's doing something like that to really, uh, you mentioned initiative foundations, but mm -hmm. uh, to, to try and, I don't know, keep that connection alive uh, in, in almost the way an expat would? You, you know, I don't know that I've heard of any other, of people who really like were intentionally saying, you know, we need to, you know, identify how we can connect with people or make better use of people who've left here but still feel attached. I mean, we get a lot of people in town for the all-school class reunion, so and I see that happening all over the state. That's interesting. So. Okay, uh, we have one right here. So you talked about moving back to Big Stone County because you had young kids and you felt like it would be a good place to raise your kids. Mm -hmm. What is your kids' favorite thing about living in Big Stone County? Boy, what is my, that is such a good question. My kids' favorite thing about living in Big Stone County. Um, you know, I think yesterday they spent the whole day, you know, building a tree fort. Not that you can't do that here. Um, but, you know. If and you get the permits. Yeah. yeah. That's fine. <laughs> so they, you know, they, you know, we have a wetland. So, you know, every spring and, you know, we've got streams and wetlands and rivers and they can, they really do just roam in wide open spaces. And, you know, so I think the last five days we've had 14 calves and so just getting to play with little teeny baby calves and we've got chicks we got 200 little fuzzy chicks and you know it's really zen just to go sit in the brooder house and like touch all those little fuzzy hands so I mean there's those are kind of things I think that that they like I mean the other thing is like um you know they not only do they want to play in sports, but they're really asked to and begged to. So if we were still in St. Paul, you know, what are the odds that they'd actually get to be playing on the basketball team? But as it is, they're like, you know, their entire grade is, their entire grade is 22 people, right? So they've got 11 boys. And if not, you know, if all of them don't play basketball, well, you know, it's hard to have a team. So they get begged, begged to be in sports. And I don't want them to play football, but, you know, People are already putting pressure on, like, you know, my, my kids are little. You know, like, my son is 70 pounds, you know. I really don't want him playing football. But, so, anyway. Problem. Okay, uh, I'm going to make my way up this way, but there was one right here. So, many people don't know that there are more than 340 newspapers in the state of Minnesota. And I'm wondering if you see the small community newspaper playing an important role in vibrant rural communities? 
Oh, yeah, that is a fabulous question. So newspapers, yeah, we have the Northern Star in uh, where we're at, but yes, those small-town papers, they are really a big part of the heart and soul of these communities. And a good small-town paper, really, it really does bring people together. So, yeah, I absolutely, small-town newspapers, I'm a huge fan. Okay, uh, the hand right here, yeah. Hi, so you had mentioned um, corn, but as more people are interested in local food and organic food, do you see that driving a resurgence to the rural population and causing that to grow smaller towns? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we do have people where I'm at. The newest people in our county are people who are coming back to farm, and they're doing it differently. When we bought the farm, it's 320 acres, but we still knew that we couldn't afford to buy a combine. So, like, we turned our farm into all, it's all grass-fed beef, and then we also, we have some certified organic that we're growing this year, we're growing barley on. Um, but the other new farm family, they're growing um, pasture-raised pork, and then they're also um, growing, you know, a diversity of crops like barley and peas and, and other things like that. So absolutely, I think the, the interest in local foods is uh, bringing people back to the landscape. Um, you know, easy bean CSAs. I mean, we have some CSAs. We've got a couple, um, you know, deep winter greenhouses for winter production. Um, those are all things that are happening out. And I think that is part of the, the hope. So there was a hand up here, and then I'll come back to the front. So what does a small town need to be sustainable? What are the most important components? Hmm. Wow, that is such a good question. Um, I mean, I think we still have some of the infrastructure in a lot of towns. Um, I mean, you do need to have people there. You need to have a community. You need people who are willing to volunteer and to fill all the roles that you have in a small town. That's one big difference. Like in the metro, you only need about 1% or 2% of your population to be on the planning and zoning and the city council and the school board. And when you get to a small town, it's like 25% of your population has to be on all of those different boards. So you, you need the people. Um, and then, you know, we need to have the businesses and the jobs. I mean, I, I commute 400 miles round trip for my job. I don't do it every day, obviously. But, you know, I mean... It would be good to have, you know, some more other uh, jobs. Um, so I'm not sure what that is. Can I just ask a, a follow-up with that, which is uh, in a previous show we had uh, the, the Thomas Fisher, the dean of the University of Minnesota School of Architecture, oh. and he talked. A, he talks a lot about this third uh, sort of industrial revolution and that mm -hmm. we're moving towards an economy where people will more or less be able for a lot of jobs to just choose where they want to be because there's a lot of technology jobs and a lot of mm -hmm. things to do virtually. And I'm wondering... Do you? I, I could see that going both ways, I guess. I could see that potentially being really great for uh, rural communities because if we get something like rural broadband in a significant way, yeah. uh, you could choose to be there. But one of his uh, notes was people often choose to be surrounded by other people who are, are doing similar things mm -hmm. that uh, they are, uh, which maybe draws them to cities. So I'm just curious, as you see sort of technology open up possibilities, uh, is, do you see that as a positive, uh, uh, maybe a challenge or a mixture? Or I don't know. 
I mean, I think it, I see it as a positive, and my neighbors who don't have high-speed internet or you know access to fiber optic cable, they would also very much like that. Um, so no, I, I don't. I, I'm not quite seeing the downside yet. And I've had conversations with Tom Fisher, and he's got a lot of really good ideas. But um, I don't. I don't see the technology as as being. Um, it's taking people away, uh, no. or no? Yeah. No, I, I mean, I don't see that okay. happening. Okay, great. So there's a hand right here in the front, and then, yeah. I was just curious, as far as, like, the state role in this, you talked about grocery stores, but, like, in, in if there's a, if we're at a time where there, there's not the population right now to sustain some of these towns, mm -hmm. is this, like, a local government aid issue? Is this, like, what, what is the role that the state, you think, should be playing that they're not playing right now? Mm -hmm. Wow, that's an interesting question. And I did I have been trying to think about that local government aid question. I mean, I I mean, I know it can be controversial, but it is sustaining the infrastructure in small towns. And I mean, I feel like we need to keep that going to be resilient uh, just as a society and as a state. And there's a lot of good skills that come out of people who have had to step up and and do things that you might not have to do. You know, so I feel like it's seeding, it's seeding a lot of good things about our culture as well. And, I, and one point I was hoping I could make, too, is about, yeah. about diversity. Um, oh, yeah. You know, uh, when I first moved out there, you, don't really, you really don't know. If you just look kind of skin deep, you may not know about the diversity. But what I have found that, um, that when I was in St. Paul, I was able to live in a bubble, right? I mean, even though I had a lot of people around me who mm. were different and, you know, I was part of a faith community, you know, that had, you know, did the first same-sex marriages in the state. And, you know, so I was surrounded by this. But these were all upper-middle-class people who all held the same political, ideological. And when I am sitting in a small town, I can be, I am literally, I have been in rooms with, you know, newborns to 100 years old, you know, with a meth addict and a multimillionaire, you know, with a Republican and a Democrat, and with a wage earner, you know, and, uh, you know, a professional, and, and having to work together to make decisions and do things um, with people that I wouldn't have necessarily have had to had any business with hmm. when I lived in St. Paul because I could surround myself with people who are like, but when you're in a small town, you you all need to work together. And I have found myself exposed to people and things and ideas that I I had more of a bubble around me when I lived in St. Paul than I, I think I do out in a rural place. That's fascinating. Uh, so I wanted to ask two, I have two last questions I wanted to ask. Uh, one, and it just made me think of it in terms of uh, this uh, a political question. So uh, one of the things I was thinking about getting ready for this show is uh, we had actually Lieutenant Governor Smith on the show recently, mm -hmm. and one I asked her about, we've seen this dramatic change now where uh, the Twin Cities metro region is almost entirely DFL and then virtually all of greater Minnesota is uh, Republicans uh, controlled by, you know, in the House at least, uh, with a mm -hmm. few exceptions. But I'm wondering, uh, that was a very dramatic sort of uh, statement, I think, in some ways, of uh, both Republicans saying, we want uh, rural Minnesota to vote for us and we will deliver, and then uh, rural Minnesota saying, okay, we're going to give you a chance, and we're coming up to an election. And so... Uh, I guess the question is, is that sort of bargain that was made in 2014 playing out? Are we seeing that the 
that were there's more attention to Greater Minnesota in the from the legislature in the last two years than maybe there had been two years before that, um, okay. or are there things that are still being ignored by both parties potentially? Boy, it, that's a good question. I mean, I will say that it does seem like the Republicans have been able to get that rural narrative going, and that that kind of seems like more attention being there. But I think you know it's actually a pretty purple area, and I don't think that the numbers are quite as stark as, you know, the elections have shown them to be. But I, you know. Yeah. I mean, so when you are, uh, and I, I think that probably you've suggested that uh, folks in rural Minnesota are, are purple in a lot of ways. I mean, what are they saying that they, uh, and this kind of goes back to this question, what are they saying they want uh, from the legislature? What is it that they're asking their representatives in those places to do? Uh, and whether it's, you know, a Democrat or a Republican. Yeah, well, you know, that's a good question. I mean, I think jobs and opportunities and infrastructure and roads, I think those are those are pretty basic things that people are talking about. Um, and I, I'm not, I mean, I kind of do see some of the conversation, you know, like the Appleton Prison is something that's being talked about regionally, um, that, you know, we have a facility, we have a need, and we have a facility, it, you know, what are the opportunities there? Um, yeah. But I don't know exactly. Yeah. I would say. Uh, well, I want the the other question I wanted to ask is something that we talked a little bit is, uh, and I keep getting this wrong. It's uh, I, I keep wanting to say it's more eyes on the field, but that's not it. It's oh, uh, eyes per acre. Eyes per acre. And uh -huh. so, uh, so first of all, you should just explain sort of what that term means. Eyes per acre. So. Um, Eyes per acre is like the number of people who are there to tend and take care of the land, and like you get a sense for that. So if you have a 20,000-acre farm and two eyes, you know, that's one eye per 10,000 acres kind of. But, you know, what about a person who has a 200-acre farm? Are you better able to understand what's happening, you know, where you might want to leave a windbreak or, you know, how you best take care of that piece of land? And so part of stewardship is just saying that, Part of stewardship is having more people on the land who can tend to it in a different way with more attention and, and care. And uh, so it's a, that attention and care. So what, what gets us to more eyes per acre, I guess, is part of the question. You know, that's such a good question. You know, Minnesota, um, at the turn of the last century, actually in the 1870s, had a lot of bonanza farms. Which oh, I were, thought you were about to say banana farms. No. Like, no what with happened? The, with the peaches. Yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> But they had these bonanza farms, which were these massive 20,000-acre farms. And then about um, when the price of wheat dropped about in the you know early 1900s, those were all broken up into family farms. So we always think of progress as just going in one direction, like farms are... Farms were small and now they're big, but it, that's not how it works. Oh. Farms were big, then they're small, now they're big. I, I am hopeful that they will be small again and that people who want to farm and who feel like they're being called to farm will have access to land and resources and hopefully still have the skills, you know. I mean, I look at Big Stone County that when my husband was born, there was about 400 dairy farms. And then when he went to college, there was about 200. When we moved back, there were about 10. And now there's one dairy farm oh, in wow. Big Stone County. And, you know, that's, I mean, I feel like we lose those, all those skills at our peril. Think about what you need to know, you know, animal husbandry, food safety, you know, how, how you take care of the land and the animal. I mean, we don't have kids who are being raised on those dairy farms anymore. And we've lost a whole suite of skills that came along with doing that. Skills that we've had for, like, what, 14,000 years? I mean, we've been animal herders for 
you know, as humans for many, many thousands of years. And now in our lifetime, or some of our lifetime anyway, we're seeing this dramatic decrease in the number of people who are taking care of animals. So last thing then, and this circles all the way back. So, uh, you know, uh, you could do this directly to the audience. We also podcast the show to anybody who listens. So make the make the pitch uh, for folks to come back to the farm or to come to the farm <laughs> for the first time. Uh, why should they do it? Why should they be uh, an eye on an acre? So I, I think first off, it's just please come back and visit. And you, you know, there are a lot of wonderful things to to see and to experience. Come have cafe, you know, a breakfast on cafe and Main Street, and you know, visit the small communities and enjoy them. And then in terms of coming back, I can say this is a really good place to have. You know, I'll speak from a family. This is a good place to have your kids. You know, this is a place where, like, that whole idea of no child left behind, in part, is because you know all those 22 children, and you don't want those 22 children in that grade to be left behind. So um, I think that there's a lot of opportunities that to, you know, it's fun to get your hands dirty and to work on a farm and to, to feel the seasons and experience that. So um, we have room for farmers. Um, we would love to have more farmers in Big Stone County, and I, you know, and more improvisers. And yeah, and more improvisers. Yeah. And you know, I was just meeting with a guy from the Regional Development Commission, Southwest Regional Development Commission. They have two jobs open in Slayton, Minnesota. These are professional planner jobs. So if you're looking for a job in Greater Minnesota, we've got some really good ones in. Um, in there. Those are for planners. So, Ladies and gentlemen, a big <laughs> round of applause. Dr. Kathy Grace. Thank you for listening. This show was recorded live at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. If you're interested in coming to an upcoming show, you can find all those details at www.t2p2.net.